From Covenant Shreveport, this is Origins of the Faith. Chapter 10, Laying Her Scepter Down, Conversion of the Empire. All right, Taylor, so today we are getting into section three of Shelley's Church History in Plain Language. This is the section known as the Age of the Christian Roman Empire. So we started initially with the Age of Jesus and the Apostles. We went into the Age of Catholic Christianity, and that ends in 312 with the beginning of what he calls the Age of the Christian Roman Empire, which goes all the way to 590 AD. And we're going to start with chapter 10 today. Um, You may have noticed we're skipping over chapter 9. Chapter 9 is an addition to uh, this particular edition, the fifth edition of this book. It's not actually in the early edition that was written by Bruce Shelley. Um, It's just something that's been added by other authors along the way. And it's a good chapter. I'd encourage you to read it. Um, But just for the sake of time, um, so that this is not a 400-week course, (laughs) uh, we decided to skip over it. But, you know, feel free to get back to that in your spare time if you want to. Um, Chapter 10, we're going to talk about the conversion of the Roman Empire. And as we talked about in our last episode, man, to me, this is one of the craziest stories in human history of how Christianity goes from being this little persecuted sect to suddenly holding great power and sway in, at this point in time, the most powerful empire the world had probably ever seen. And not only that, but also running out uh, the Roman paganism and the Roman pantheon of gods, um, and also to some extent the emperor worship that had taken place in Rome for so long. Not to mention exercising authority over the emperor himself. Yes. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. that is one that will catch you off guard. It is. Uh, it is It is a fascinating thing. And what we said at the end of the last episode was you either view this as the greatest thing to ever happen to Christianity or as the worst thing to ever happen to Christianity. Right. And so is, is this – tell me more about that. <laughs> Well, so, you know, like if you, view the, if you view this as one of the greatest things to ever happen to Christianity, you're probably going, hey, we were this persecuted minority, mm-hmm. um, even though Christian, Christians had grown in number, um, we had just come out of a period in the late 200s known as the Great Persecution under the Roman Emperor Diocletian, um, which was one of the worst times for believers um, since the church had started. And and now, all of a sudden, we are given uh, not only legal status as believers, but we're also giving, given prominence, we're given power and authority. And, um, and so for, I think, the optimist, you, you go, well, now we can win the world for Jesus. Like, mm-hmm. we've got the full weight of the Roman Empire behind us. And so... Man, there's nowhere we can't go. There's nothing we can't do, and so it would be be easy to go. Man, this is just a gift from the Lord. Sure, if not for what Jesus said about power and authority, right? <laughs> I, well, maybe perhaps. that's the other side of the coin. I yeah, I mean, I think the other side of the coin, and um, something that people have issues with are, um, it's is it possible that. 
um, some of the Roman religious system uh, that predated Christianity? Um, is it possible that some of that actually gets uh, kind of weaved into mm-hmm. Christianity because of the influence of the emperor and because of the power and the money that was at stake? Um, is it possible that you have many people who are becoming Christian not because they are actually Christians, but because they view it as a socially or politically expeditious thing to do? Right. Um, and, and then something we know that happened, and we may touch on it because he talks about it in this chapter, is that eventually it becomes, you know, the, the power um, dynamic shifts to the point where uh, it's not the Christians who are being persecuted, it's the pagans who are being persecuted. And in some cases, just like Christians had formerly been forced to say Caesar is Lord, now you have pagans who are being forced or coerced to say Jesus is Lord, mm-hmm. uh, which is also a problem, Yeah, right? Because the gospel is not coercive in in that kind of uh, military type way. Right. So um, I, and this is just my personality, I have a tendency to take a moderate approach and say there are pros and cons sure. with this transition. Um, there are definite pros in that the age of persecution is ended, um, but, you know, it's also possible that with the age of persecution being ended, you see an, uh, a decline in zeal for the gospel. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And you see a decline in people who are willing to suffer for the sake of Christ. That's the big one I see. And that's that's what really struck me in this chapter was what was being described is a quasi-national religion, mm. Christianity as this national religion, where it included a whole bunch of people, the majority of this population now, who are nominal or complacent Christians, Mm -hmm. but who conflate their religion with political authority. Mm. And I just can't think of another nation that that might describe. (laughs) (laughs) Sarcasm much? A little bit. Yeah. Yeah, this this is totally a factor in today's world, in our country today. Um... Taking on the name of Jesus, if you believe it will be politically helpful to you, yeah. um, and and just here in the South where we have a cultural Christianity, there is also this taking on the name of the name of Jesus. If you believe it will be socially helpful to you, mm-hmm. um, it will if it will help you get your family off your back, or it'll help you to. Um, you know, get into the right school or get the right job. And um, I mean, I I know people who feel like, you know, some things are inaccessible to them because they don't go to the right church. Sure. Um, I mean, that's a real thing, even here in America in today's world. Hmm. Uh, To take it back to the late 200s, we mentioned Diocletian, who is generally viewed as one of the worst opponents of Christianity. Um, in the first few hundred years, and uh, Diocletian was on the throne from 284 to 305. And what Shelley says is, he kind of sarcastically says, you know, Diocletian's gotten a lot of bad press because <laughs> he was a bad dude. Um, but yet at the same time, prior to him taking the throne, the Roman Empire was not in a great state. It was it was sort of crumbling. And, and the Roman Empire was huge. Like, it was just so massive. Um Diocletian comes to the throne and does use, I think, a lot of um, military power, uh, fear, 
um, as a way of gaining power and motivating people. But but that had been going on for a while because up until this point, um, I, I forget what he says here, but there were, let's see, there were 30 emperors who had claimed the throne in the third century alone, and many right. others had tried. So it's like one person becomes emperor, he gets killed, another person becomes emperor, somebody kills him, that person becomes emperor, and just all over and over and over again. And so because there was no steady emperor, and there was all of this infighting and fragmentation, the Roman Empire was just kind of crumbling. And Diocletian does come in, and he does kind of right the ship, as it were. He does... Um, I think, help return the Roman Empire back to some of its previous glory days. And one of the things he does is he he does not try to be the only ruler, right? right? He, he basically sets up these sub-emperors underneath him and gives them power over different regions of the Roman Empire. And eventually, um, Diocletian abdicates and... Um, the person who comes to the throne by killing yet another, you know, sub-emperor is this guy Constantine. And Constantine comes to the throne after uh, defeating his opponent, who was a guy named Maxentius, um, who was another sub-emperor. Constantine defeats him at um, what's known as the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, um, in which they, I think, destroy the bridge and, and these guys all plummet to their death. Um, and what's so interesting about this is after the fact, Constantine says that he had seen a vision right before going into battle and that he saw a sign in the sky and it's the sign that's often known as the key row. Um, and, and the key row, it looks like the letter P with an X in the bottom tail of the P, mm-hmm. um, which is a sign, uh, that the early church used as a, as a mark of, as a mark of Christianity in the way that you'll see people just wear the cross today around their neck. Um, the key row was sort of a symbol for the early Christian church. And Constantine said he saw this in the sky and uh, the words in this sign conquer and that that dream uh, led him to do what he did in this battle. And even though his his military force was inferior, he winds up coming out on top. So um, the question here, though, is that, you know, it's like, is that real? You know, did that did that actually happen? Because a lot of historians want to say, no, probably not. More than likely, Constantine was a savvy statesman, mm-hmm. a savvy politician, and he recognized the the sheer number of Christians that were out there and that if he could rally them um, to be on his side, that he would have a considerable force behind him. And so this period of persecution comes to an end. Constantine becomes emperor. Um, and even though he you know, has a lot of issues, even though I don't, I, he is not a Christian, at least early on, even though he has helped to legalize this and he elevates Christians into positions of power, early on he is not a Christian. Um, he does, he does b- get baptized right before his death. 
um, later on. And even that's, I think, a little dubious as well. Did he actually convert or was Mm. this just yet another political move on his part? But without him, uh, Christianity does not come out of the fringes and back onto the main stage. And yeah. So, what what are some of your takeaways on Constantine in particular? It, what what is your read on him? It is just wild that this happens so quickly. Mm-hmm. So, as we mentioned, you do go from complete and utter persecution, um, the likes of which we have not seen in the few short centuries that we've looked at, even though there's been a lot. The fact that it's even worse now, right before Constantine's rise to the to the throne, yeah. is is just terrible. And so you go from that almost overnight to Sunday being a public holiday, the Lord's Day, mm. and allowing Christian minister, ministers to enjoy, enjoy tax exemption. Mm. The, these are things that a few century or no, a few decades previously, it, it's not like these were even being asked for. You just didn't want to be killed. And all of a sudden you've got tax exempt status. You're your special day, this day of the Lord, is a national holiday. You're openly able to not only profess your Christianity, but be celebrated for it. And then the emperor's family is living in Christian homes and going to churches. And this is this is the most wild roller coaster that I think one could have possibly imagined. Yeah. So one of the things Shelley says, and I, th- I thought this was a great choice of words, but he says, prior to 312, Christianity had been outlawed and persecuted. Suddenly, it was favored and pampered. That, right. that word pampered to me, I was like, yeah, that's 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 what happened. Like, It's not just that it gets legalized. And it's like, hey, we're not going to kill you guys anymore. It's like... Christian and and especially bishops and priests get elevated and to this level of uh, power and I want to say luxury as well that they had never had before. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned some of just the fringe benefits, like such as not being taxed, but but also Constantine begins funding from the government, like he begins funding the work of the church. And this enters us into a new age of Christian scholarship because Constantine begins funding Christian scholarship. And um, that had just never happened before. Um, We also, you know, one thing we haven't talked about is it hasn't been since Acts chapter 15 with what's called the Jerusalem Council um, very early on in the church before it was spread out all over the Roman Empire that we have had any kind of gathering of the church. Like churches have gathered in their localities, but there's never been some point where all of these bishops or priests from other parts of the Roman Empire have come together for any purpose. Um, And we'll get into this more in uh, um, future chapters, but it is Constantine that convenes the very first council of the worldwide church outside of Acts 15, which is the Council of Nicaea, um, which is uh, in the 320s, 324, 325 in there. And um, he's the one that makes all of that happen. 
he he foots the bill. He's the one who calls for it um, because he recognizes, and, and it's in response to a heresy that we'll talk more about um, called Arianism. But um, he sees some of the infighting that's going on in the church, and so he's the one who steps in, you know, seemingly in this role of mediator or peacemaker by calling this council together, and he kind of presides at the Council of Nicaea yeah. um, as the Roman emperor, you know, as somebody who is not a clergyman, you know, right. or a, a leader within the church, but he's there. You that, know? That's definitely highlighting some of the good and the bad that we mentioned at the mm-hmm. beginning of this of this episode, where you've got national status for this religion, for this faith tradition, and that's that's going to come with some benefits and some disadvantages. The you're right. That word "pampered" is is perfect for this scenario. Mm. You've got guys that had zero freedoms before and were wholly invested in shepherding their flock, who are all of a sudden just lavished with these with the niceties of the Roman Empire that they would have never enjoyed. We've talked about before a little bit the fact that the Roman Empire is so vast, you have the Eastern Roman Empire and you have the Western Roman Empire. And early on, Christianity is birthed in what is geographically the Eastern Roman Empire. Jerusalem, Antioch, Alexandria, those places are all in what would be thought of as the East. Um, And if you look at it on a map, you'll see what I'm talking about. You have then the Western Roman Empire, which are places like Rome proper, um, Italy, uh, Spain, uh, Gaul, which comes to be known as France, all the way up into England. Like that would be the Western Roman Empire. And when Constantine comes to power, he moves the Roman capital from the west to the east. And so a lot of this elevation and pampering of the church during Constantine's reign is happening in the east. So um, he moves the, the capital city from Rome to what was known as Byzantium. He renames it Constantinople. It's now what's known as Istanbul today in Turkey. Um, The reason why he moves the capital there is because a lot of the outside threats that the empire was facing was from tribes coming out of the east. So I think on... On a, from a military standpoint, he wanted to be closer to where the action was. Yeah. Um, but also, it, it essentially creates an even deeper divide between the East and the West, which was culturally already very different. Mm-hmm. Um, but by having the Roman emperor in the East and I think primarily investing a lot of his uh, resources and effort and presence in the East, you, you really do have this rise of... Byzantinian Christianity, this Eastern Christianity, which today I think is best reflected in Eastern Orthodox Christianity or Mm. Greek Orthodox Christianity, um, which is still something that's very much present today. But if you've ever been to an Eastern Orthodox church and a Roman Catholic church, you have found that those are two very different worship experiences. Hmm. Um, And some of that difference dates all the way back to this point in time, because as Shelley mentions, Constantine um, pours a lot into these different churches and basilicas that are being built. And, And there is a very particular Byzantine architectural style as well um, that influenced a lot of these churches um, also. So it's it's a fascinating age. 
Um, Shelley says, prior to Constantine's conversion, the church consisted of convinced believers who were willing to bear the risk of being identified as Christians, right? Right. These just zealous, out front, uh, ready to die for Christ type people. He says, now many came who were politically ambitious, religiously disinterested, and still half-rooted in paganism. Um, and this threatened to produce not only shallowness and um, permeation by pagan superstitions, but also the secularization and misuse of religion for polit- political purposes. Um, I think all of those things happen here. Sure. Um, and the question becomes, to what extent did those things happen? And to what extent did they take root? And there are modern uh we can, I guess, call them historians today who try to say that, no, the Roman Empire completely overtook Christianity in this age, and that doctrines that come out of the church during this period of time are purely like a a remaking of Roman paganism um, in light of Christ, which to me is a big reach. Mm-hmm. Um, because you have some who would try to say that even something like the Trinity is just a remaking of Roman paganism. And sure. it's like, well, no, we clearly find the Trinity in the pages of Scripture. And even well prior to the time of Constantine, you have writers who are writing um, about the Trinity. Origin is one of those, uh, the Cappadocian fathers who Shelley has written about, that's, that's Basil and Gregory of Nyssa and Gregory of Nazianzus, um, those guys. Uh, so, so it's the Trinity is not some um, some thing that comes out of Constantine's influence or the influence of Roman paganism. It right. was already there, but that's a that's a charge that gets levied. Um, yet there is, or there are issues here, and mm-hmm. there is some of what Shelley's describing here. Yeah. Uh, page 123, uh, we mentioned the downside of this. Mm-hmm. There are some positives, but there are a lot of, you know, a, a lot of downside as well. Um, page 123, he mentions uh, the Roman emperor Theodosius. And in uh, the year 380, um, he says, or by that time at least, um, rewards for Christians had given way to penalties for non-Christians. So there was a point in time where it was like, man, if you turn in a Christian, you're going to get rewarded for that because they were under persecution. Now it's like, if you are not a Christian, then you are going to be persecuted. Yep. And he quotes the Emperor Theodosius here. And here's what Theodosius says. He says, it is our will that all the peoples we rule shall practice the re- religion which the divine Peter the Apostle transmitted to the Romans. We shall believe in the single deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit under the concept of equal majesty and of the Holy Trinity. We command that those persons who follow this rule shall embrace the name of Catholic Christians. The rest, however, whom we adjudge demented and insane, (laughs) shall sustain the infamy of heretical dogmas. Their meeting places shall not receive the name of churches and they shall be smitten first by divine vengeance, and secondly, by the retribution of our own initiative, which we shall assume in accordance with divine judgment. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, 
Here's this Roman emperor who would consider himself a Christian. Yep. He is a part of the church. And as Roman emperor, what he says is that uh, all of our forefathers and ancestors were insane. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Everybody who participated in Roman paganism, literally just a few decades prior, those folks were all demented and insane. And um, now we know that Jesus Christ has given us this religion, and we know that because he gave it to the divine Peter, the apostle, and Peter, the apostle, transmitted this to the Romans. Um, and so he, he lays out like a Trinitarian view here. We believe in the deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but then he makes himself an agent of divine retribution, right? He says, basically, you know, the worst thing that's going to happen to you is divine vengeance. But then secondly, (laughs) the retribution of our own initiative, which we shall assume in in accordance with divine judgment. And so it's like, I mean, I'm, I'm the emperor. I'm not a bishop. I'm not a priest, but I'm going to take on this mantle of being like the sword of God yep. to anybody who is demented and insane. Sure. In yeah. that they don't that's, believe in Jesus. That's Romans 13, right? That's basically <laughs> what Paul's saying. Yes. This wow. Is, this is unbelievable. And so this guy, as Shelley points out, was so zealous that he at one point um, murders all of these people who are watching a chariot race because they had freed this one chariot rider from jail who was believed to uh, be a homosexual. And Theodosius comes in and kills all multiple thousands of people uh, by locking them in this uh, arena and sending in the troops to kill them all. Um, and this is where uh, the Bishop of Milan, Ambrose, comes to the surface. And mm-hmm. Ambrose is a signif- significant figure in the church. Um, and even today is uh, viewed by the church, the Roman Catholic Church, I think the Eastern Orthodox Church as well, as being a saint. Um, so he is still somebody who is very much held in high regard by the church at large. Um, and he calls the emperor out on this and calls him to repent, which is, so, I mean, a hundred years before, you would not have had a bishop that even had a... Um, platform to to make this kind of a call to the emperor. And had a bishop done this in any kind of a public way, it would have only resulted in death. Like, very, very quickly. Yeah, absolutely. Ambrose, though, um, does this thing that has been in the news lately. Oh, that's right. In that he refused Holy Communion to the Emperor to the Theodosius emperor. because of what he had done. And he writes to Theodosius, this is on page 124, he says, I cannot deny you have a zeal for the faith and that you fear God, but you have a naturally passionate spirit which becomes ungovernable when you are excited. I call on you to repent. You can only atone for your sin by tears, by penitence, and by humbling your soul before God. You are a man, and as you have sinned as a man, so you must repent. No angel, no archangel can forgive you. God alone can forgive you, and he forgives only those who repent. This is bold, right? To say the least. Even in an age when bishops and guys like Ambrose had power, it is bold and um, daring to call out the Roman emperor. And what Shelley points out is he says Ambrose 
had hit upon the weapon, which was this threat of excommunication. I'm, I'm not only going to not serve you communion, we might just kick you out of the church altogether. And this is maybe not the first time that that had been used, but certainly the first time that it had been used with somebody with this kind of power and authority. Sure. And what Shelley says is this becomes the tool um, that the Western church would use again and again to humble princes. This becomes the threat from the church. If you don't fall in line with what we want, we're going to kick you out. And because we believe uh, at this point in time, because the church believes that in order to be saved, you have to have the church, um, meaning the organization of the church, then if I'm out of the church, if I'm, if I'm out of the fellowship, then I'm I'm possibly losing my salvation. Yeah, you're in danger. And so um, that's another area that will where things will get really murky for the church. Oh, and and let's not forget. So Ambrose does this, and Theodosius follows through. Yes, right, he shows up in sackcloth. The emperor shows up in sackcloth with ashes on his head. And apparently crawls down the aisle and asks for forgiveness. Yeah, it's a crazy story. (laughs) And Ambrose forgives him. (laughs) Because, again, at this point in time, bishops have been given this power, right? They they have taken on, and, and, and this is so interesting. You have this emperor who's going, man, the power of divine retribution has now been given to me. He's taking on that mantle for himself, but you also have these bishops who are going, the mantle of forgiveness has been given to us. Mm-hmm. Um, so, man, just, just, just a fascinating age in the life of the church, and things are only going to get worse, Taylor. <laughs> Lovely. Uh, I mean, the history of the church is... Hard. It is. Um, it is not uh, a history of people who all do the right thing and who all follow Jesus perfectly. I, I mean, the the thing that is encouraging to me about the study of history is it's just like the study of humanity. It's just a, it's a study of sin in many ways. And along the way, you see these bright spots. You see people who rise up as true followers of Jesus who are not just in it for themselves, who truly do care about other people, who are truly seeking to love others in the way that they love themselves. And these people pop up along the way, and they really are just uh, these amazing bright spots in what at times is a very dark history within the Christian church where horrific things are done in the name of God, like what Theodosius did. Like he was saying, no, we're doing this because um, we have been somehow tasked with this by God, right? And that becomes an excuse for all kinds of heinous things, um, which we will get into in chapters to come. All right, guys, we're going to stop here for today. Hope you're enjoying this. Hope it is um, something that is helpful to you and that you really feel like you're learning some things as you follow along and um, follow along in the book as well. And um, we'll join you guys next time. See ya.